0: is Crimes of the Centuries. A group of breathless teenagers, some bruised and covered in dust, had come to Paint Rock, Alabama with an incredible story. They said they'd been aboard a Southern Railroad freight train when, all of a sudden, a different group of boys ruthlessly picked a fight, overpowering them with guns and knives and even physically throwing some of them off the moving train. Under different circumstances, this tale might not have garnered much attention because the complaining teens had been stowaways on the train and the other group had been, too. So this was basically a fight between two groups of hobos catching illegal rides for free to get from one town to another. But this story did garner attention because the group of boys complaining was white and the group accused was black. Not only that, but this was March 25th, 1931. And did I mention it was in Alabama?
1: News goes out that there is a gang of blacks, gang of Negroes, on the train that beat up a gang of whites. A posse is organized. Virtually every man in Paint Rock with a gun or a rope shows up. The train stops. The posse goes up and down the train, looking in all the cars.
0: That's historian James Goodman in a PBS documentary called An American Tragedy. Aboard the train, the posse found the crew of African-Americans that they were looking for, plus a couple of young white men. And they also found two young white women dressed as men in coveralls. And the townsfolk
2: are looking around going, oh, and the white women, because you've got black guys and white women in Alabama in the early 1930s.
0: This is Carol Anderson, a professor of African-American studies at Emory University. The women told police that the violence wasn't over once the black men had bested the white men.
2: Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, Yale Rape and say that these nine Black teenagers raped them.
0: Sexual assault is always a serious crime. But in Alabama in 1931, it was a capital offense. So the nine accused men were rounded up, chained together, and hauled to Scottsboro, Alabama, where they would spend the next decade-plus fighting for their lives in one of the country's most infamous and divisive cases. Now the case against the Scottsboro Boys, as a group of black men came to be called in newspapers across the country, is inherently complicated. It involves nine defendants ranging in age between 13 and 20. There are two female accusers, plus the white men who reported the fight that started the whole thing. And it involves multiple trials and court hearings. I mean, we're talking at least a dozen different ones. This case drags on for well over a decade. And I mean, really, from start to resolution, it spans more than 80 years, I kid you not. And that isn't all. This case is especially noteworthy because how do I word this diplomatically? It's based on absolute bullshit. But more on that later. Let's start at the beginning.
2: You can't understand unless you've got the context of the Great Depression. You have folks riding the rails looking for work, just because they can't afford to, you know, I'll go find this job here. So they're just hopping on a train and riding in, trying to find work wherever they can find work.
0: The Cliff's Notes version of the Great Depression is that in the 1920s, people went nuts buying stocks, which caused stock market prices to balloon far beyond what they were actually worth. That balloon burst in September 1929. Stock market prices plummeted, prompting people to sell their stocks in a panic, decimating the market. Unemployment jumped 5% from 1929 to 1930. By 1931, when the Scottsboro Boys were arrested, it had climbed to about 16% and was showing no signs of slowing its ascent. It would peak at 25%, a quarter of the country unemployed. With jobs straight up disappearing across the country, experienced adults had trouble landing gigs, so there were even fewer opportunities for kids with mediocre educations. Families couldn't afford to feed everyone, so if you were a kid in a poor household in 1931, chances are you threw a few necessities in a bindle tied to a stick, and you left to fend for yourself. You'd find a job shoveling coal or shucking corn or picking fruit. I mean, really, whatever you could find. And when that job dried up, you'd hop on a freight train and try someplace else. Riding the rails wasn't the safest way to get from town to town, but it was cost-effective. Freight riders would find an empty car to huddle in if they were lucky. If they were less so, they'd end up on top or beneath the car instead. In the Scottsboro case, a black 18-year-old man named Hayward Patterson was hanging on to the side of the train when the group of white men crossed his path. They were scrambling across the top of the train looking for an empty car. One of the white men stepped on Patterson's hand, nearly knocking him off the train. Patterson would later describe the scene in writing. This is an actor reading his words in the PBS documentary.
2: We're just minding our own business. when one of them said, this is a white man's train. All you bastards unload. But we weren't going nowhere. So there was a fight. We got the best of it and threw them off.
0: It got heated fast, with the Black men inside the train coming to Patterson's aid. Now, for the record, I keep alternating between calling these groups men and boys, and that's because they were both, especially in the case of the Black crew. The oldest was 20, but a couple of them were straight-up kids at 13. The average age was about 16. In addition to Patterson, the crew included Andy Wright, 19, Andy's little brother Roy, 13, Eugene Williams, 13, Clarence Norris, 19, Ozzie Powell, 15, Willie Roberson, 16, Olin Montgomery, 17, and, coming in at the oldest, Charlie Weems, 20. Two were brothers, obviously, and four in total had crossed paths before But for the most part, these were nine strangers hanging out together because that's what felt safest in post-Civil War America. I mean, they were traveling through Alabama, the state which, in 1901, so just 30 years earlier, had adopted a constitution that literally announced its intention to, quote, establish white supremacy in this state, end quote. So, yeah, the group of black people probably felt a bit more comfy together than they would intermingling with a group of white people. And it's not a leap to think that at least one of those white men might have gotten it in his head that he had more right to illegally hop the train than the black men did. And after all, he lived in a state with segregated schools and buses and racist poll taxes and gerrymandering. But I digress. After the white men were trounced and alerted the posse that stopped the train, the two groups of men proffered conflicting stories, Both said the other started it, and that's not unusual in any scuffle, right? What elevated this crime were the two women's allegations. Victoria Price and Ruby Bates were two young women who were on the train for the same reason as all the boys and young men. They were looking for work. Price grew up poor in Huntsville, Alabama, where she got her first job at age 10 as a spinner in a cotton mill. Price's mother worked at the same mill, but ended up getting injured, leaving Price the duo's sole income earner. In the 20s, she'd earn about $2 a day, or $30 in today's money, not great. And by 1931, the market crash had meant her pay was cut nearly in half, down to a buck twenty a day. Price sometimes worked as a sex worker to supplement her wages. She got married young and divorced young, too. In fact, by the time she reported the alleged Scottsboro assault, she'd been married three times. No judgment here, but plenty of judgment back in the day. Not only is this a post-Civil War world of Jim Crow laws, it's also a stupidly misogynistic and paternalizing world. Price had had relations with a man on the train who wasn't her husband, and because of that, she actually risked being charged with a federal crime because she had violated the 1910 Mann Act. That law prohibited women from crossing state lines for the, quote, purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, end quote. In short, she was about to face charges. And those charges disappeared when she said that she and her friend Ruby Bates had been assaulted. And being a black man accused of assaulting a white woman in the South in 1931 could be a death sentence. This is still 24 years before 14 year old Emmett Till was brutally lynched for allegedly flirting with a white woman. It wasn't even true, but even if it had been, he was just flirting.
1: The image of black men was that they were anxious at all times to
0: rape a white woman. And it was the Scottsboro case that met that issue head-on. People in Scottsboro were outraged. The night of the arrest, a furious mob gathered outside the jail. The county sheriff, to his credit, got worried about his prisoners and actually called on the state National Guard to protect the jail. The sheriff warned the mob, if you come in here, I will blow your brains out. That, plus some cruddy weather, helped the crowd dissipate. The Scottsboro boys lived through the night, which was something. The nine men were indicted by a grand jury on March 30th, just five days after their arrest. The trial began on April 6th, one week after the indictment. If that sounds absurdly fast, that's because it was. Every court-appointed defense lawyer asked to handle the case managed to squirm out of it, except for one. That was Milo Moody, a notoriously forgetful 69-year-old attorney who hadn't defended a case in years. The defendant's parents were naturally worried. They scraped together some money and hired a lawyer rather than rely on the court-appointed one. But the only guy willing to take the case for their paltry $50 was a real estate lawyer named Stephen Roddy, who not only was unfamiliar with Alabama criminal law, but was also a documented drunk. Newspaper reporters described him staggering into the courtroom at his first hearing, so blitzed he could barely walk. Think about this.
2: Your court-appointed attorneys, one is the town drunk. I believe at the time he may have had a blood alcohol level of .2. I mean, lit. The other attorney in a capital case is probably in about the fourth stages of senility. So one of your attorneys is senile, looking for butterflies, and the other one is drunk, seeing butterflies.
0: Because the trial was just two weeks after the alleged crime, these two lawyers barely had any prep time at all. I mean, even skilled lawyers need time to prepare. On top of that, the judge in the case, Alfred Hawkins, was determined to get these trials over as quickly as possible. I say trials plural, because the nine defendants were to be split up into three groups with three separate juries. But get this, their trials were to be back to back, one right after the other, without even a break in between. Hawkins wanted all nine to be tried by the end of a single day. This was absolute breakneck speed.
1: The trials of the nine defendants for rape got underway on Monday, April 6th in the Scottsboro Courthouse. It was a traditional trading day in town, but the usual crowd was swelled by thousands more from hundreds of miles around.
0: This trial had become about so much more than assault. To one side, it was about maintaining white supremacy and protecting the virtue of their womenfolk. To the other side, it was about the system being manipulated in a notoriously racist state to railroad innocent black men. The largest crowd in Scottsboro history packed the courthouse square. The scene was an absolute circus. The
1: courthouse was full of people, and they were jumping about the seats with pistols. Nothing with a black person around nowhere. Everybody was white, but this was nine.
0: The prosecution's star witnesses were, of course, the two accusing women. Both of them took the stand, but it was Price who was the most forceful and accusatory. In each of the three trials, she identified the defendants as her attackers and got more and more descriptive about the alleged assault. Not so her co-accuser though. From the PBS documentary. Ruby Bates is totally different.
1: Very quiet, soft-spoken. In effect, it was a kind of relationship in which Victoria totally dominated Ruby Bates.
0: Bates described an assault, but she was vague in her language and didn't identify any of the defendants as her attackers. Turns out there was good reason. It's because she wasn't attacked. Neither was Price. Remember when I said the case was bullshit? Yeah, the assault that kicked off this crime of the century didn't happen. I mean, maybe I should have spoiler alerted that, but it feels a little disingenuous to drag out a surprise ending in a 90-year-old case. So instead, I'll tell you what we know now. The scuffle part between the two groups of men was true. It wasn't instigated by the black men, as the white men had claimed, and no one was armed, which again was a lie initially told to the sheriff's posse, but there was a scuffle. The men who reported it embellished a bit and failed to mention that, really, their egos were bruised way more than their bodies. But the part about rape? Well, that was just bogus. The Black men aboard the train didn't even know there were women around. Victoria and Ruby were dressed like men, if you remember, until the crew was being escorted to a paddy wagon in Paint Rock. If officials didn't know the women had lied to save themselves from being federally charged for violating the Mann Act, they should have figured it out in the very first trial, according to Carol Anderson.
2: In this trial, Victoria Price described uh, the horrific rape Well, the problem was, was that the doctor who had examined these women said, "Mm, there's no evidence of rape here. But that didn't stop the jury. The, The doctor now didn't testify that there was no evidence of rape. But it was very clear that he knew there was no evidence of rape. And he had told folks there was no evidence of rape.
0: After being escorted from the train in Paint Rock, the women were taken to two doctors for examinations. The two women had reported brutal, violent attacks. Price said she had a knife held to her throat and was smashed in the head with a gun. She'd also said that her back had been sliced by a jagged rock on the train car floor during the repeated assaults. But the physical exams didn't support that. Doctors recovered sperm, meaning the women had had sex recently, but there was no evidence of violence. But, as Anderson noted, the doctors didn't say this on the stand. The prosecution obviously steered clear of questions that might elicit such information, and the defense didn't push back at all on cross-examination. Moody and Roddy were such shoddy attorneys that they barely asked anyone any questions at all. Even as the day wore on and Price's versions of the attack started contradicting themselves, they just sat there. When it was their turn to put on a defense, The only witnesses they called to the stand were the defendants themselves. In Alabama, in 1931, the all-white, all-male juries were told, choose one to believe, the white women or the black men. Guess which one they chose?
1: When they announced the verdict of guilty, people ran out and the judge was trying to bring order. And as soon as the uh, word got outside, the, the crowd outside went
0: crazy. The jury in the first trial reached a verdict as the jury in the second trial was hearing testimony. So when the crowd went nuts, that second jury pool heard it and knew that that meant the first jury pool had reached a guilty verdict, which is a legal no-no today because it obviously risks prejudicing the still deciding jurors when they know how a similar trial was decided. In a series of hurried trials, each of them was found guilty of rape by all white juries,
2: sparking protests across the country.
0: Actually, eight of the nine defendants were convicted and sentenced to death. The ninth was one of the 13-year-olds, and the jury couldn't decide on whether he should be sentenced to life in prison or to death. So that trial ended with a hung jury. Everyone else was set to die in the electric chair. But the nation was watching. And so were the communists. The Scottsboro case is a head-scratcher in a lot of ways, but here's maybe the head-scratchiest part. The defendants found allies in the Communist Party.
1: Well, the American Communist Party is formed in 1919.
0: This is Baruch College professor Clarence Taylor in an NBC News Learn video.
1: Many people in the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, a syndicalist organization, helped form the American Communist Party. Many foreign nationals joined this party. And they're all, of course, inspired by the uh, Russian Revolution.
0: I bet $5 you didn't start this episode about rape allegations in Alabama and expect to hear anything about the 1917 Russian Revolution. And long story short, that revolution inspired the creation of the Communist Party USA, and the communists were trying to generate headlines and build alliances. They took up a number of causes, but racial equality was one of the biggest.
1: So they recruit blacks and they move them quickly up the, uh, the ladder into the Communist Party. And the Communist Party attract support from African-Americans.
0: You might have thought that the still nascent NAACP would have rushed to defend the Scottsboro boys, but they actually hemmed and hawed a good while. They weren't sure that this was a test case they wanted to adopt. The communists, meanwhile, were all in right away. They were a bit more PR savvy and quick to involve themselves in sensational events. And the Scottsboro Boys was one of the highest profile they adopted. The
1: American Communist Party wasted no time in running to the defense of Scottsboro young men, hiring an attorney to defend them, and attempting to try the case in the international court of public opinion, as well as in the courtroom. And in the long run, they they managed to save the lives of these young men.
0: If the Communist Party hadn't gotten the boys real lawyers for their appeals, eight of the nine defendants likely would have been executed as scheduled. They recruited a criminal defense attorney from New York named Samuel Liebowitz. He wasn't a communist. In fact, he was a registered Democrat, but he was a good lawyer. He had never lost a murder trial. Well, what happens now that they've got a real
2: legal team is that they began to construct the train and found out that Many of the Scottsboro boys weren't even in the same car as the women. So how can a rape happen if the guys aren't in that car?
0: Liebowitz was floored by the way obvious, rampant racism had condemned these nine young men. This is from an interview with him years later.
1: When you were a defense attorney, I remember you defended the Scottsboro boys. Now, do you think there are any uh, racial or regional differences between our young men or tendencies towards any particular type of crime? Oh, heavens, no. That's uh, what people like to believe.
0: He attacked the case from every angle he could think of. He filed an appeal based on the jury's lack of diversity. All of those trials with 12 jurors apiece, and not one of the jurors was black. Leibowitz fought to see the county's list of potential jurors and found that there were no black people on it at all. Now remember, the Civil War kind of should have decided this already. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment said, if you were born in the U.S., you were officially a U.S. citizen, free and clear, and equal. And the 15th Amendment guarantees that everyone, no matter their race, has the right to vote. Alabama and some other states, mostly Southern, chipped away at that by instituting poll taxes and literacy tests that were targeted largely at Black citizens and jury duty was reserved for eligible voters. So Alabama had successfully, and legally, shrunk the pool of eligible Black people, but not to zero. The state judge who heard Leibowitz's argument on this was not surprisingly unmoved, but the United States Supreme Court eventually would be. And they remanded the case, they kicked the case back down. You
2: gotta try these fellas again.
0: So Alabama did. This time, however, Ruby Bates changed her story. I'll try to do this scene justice because it really is like something out of a movie. Bates had disappeared in late February after the first trial. Prosecutors had, of course, wanted her to come back and testify again alongside Victoria Price, but they couldn't find her anywhere. Then, just as the defense was preparing to rest its case in Haywood Patterson's retrial, Bates suddenly appeared. Everyone in the courtroom was shocked. Court watchers murmured excitedly. Judge James Horton was taken aback, but he allowed her to testify. Bates said Victoria Price had insisted she lie on the stand in the first trial. Quote, she told me if I didn't say it, they would put us in jail, end quote. What really happened, she said, was that she and Price met up with two men, Jack Tiller and Lester Carter, who were being released from jail. Bates and Carter split off into a couple, as did Price and Tiller. Both couples had sex and spent the next day and night together. Carter and the two women decided to hop a train to Chattanooga, but Tiller wasn't keen on that, so he stayed behind. The threesome picked up another man, Orville Gilly, tried in vain to find some work, spent the night in what was called Hobo Swamp near the train tracks, and then decided to head back toward Huntsville the next morning. The four hopped another train and, after a while, noticed that in the next train car over from them, a group of white guys and black guys started fighting. Carter and Gilly, the two boys who'd hooked up with the women, jumped over to help. The black men had tossed or shooed off most of the whites, but they actually kept Gilly from jumping off because they worried the train by them was going too fast and he might get hurt. As such, Gilly supposedly witnessed the attacks. In fact, police told reporters he'd been asked to participate but declined. And yet, Gilly was never called to testify. Here's some of the back and forth from the transcript of Bates' testimony. Leibowitz. Then what happened when you, Victoria, and Gilly were there? Did the Negroes come in that car where you were? Bates. Not that I know of. Leibowitz. Did any Negro attack you that day? Bates. Not that I know of. Did any Negro attack Victoria Price that day? Bates. Not that I know of. She was in the gondola where I was. From the start, Bates hadn't been as forceful in her allegations because it was one thing to say, I was attacked. But to her, it was quite another to point at a specific person and say, he attacked me. So she had never identified her attackers. And after the case had blown up, wrote a letter to a boyfriend that said, quote, I wish those Negroes aren't burnt on account of me, end quote. She apparently shared her misgivings with a pastor in New York named Harry Emerson Fostick. An Associated Press reporter in New York tracked down that pastor, who said Bates came in for a private confessional on Friday, March 24th, because she was disturbed in her conscience about her testimony. He said, quote, I, as a clergyman, advised her to tell the truth. She promised me she would go back to the second trial and do so. End quote. The prosecution, of course, tried to convince jurors that Bates had been bought off by the defense in general and the Communists in particular, but she didn't waver. Victoria Price didn't waver either. She continued, in each retrial, to describe her alleged attack. Leibowitz did a much better job trying to point out inconsistencies with her stories. But a Jewish lawyer from the North questioning the integrity of a white Southern woman, well, it didn't go over well. One jury after another continued to side with Price.
2: They were convicted once again. Case goes back up to the Supreme Court.
0: She's not talking about the Alabama Supreme Court either. This case was of such huge importance that it landed in front of the U.S. Supreme Court twice. The whole country was watching The Scottsboro case ping pong between state courts and the Supreme courts more than any other I've ever researched. They were never found not guilty at the state level, not ever. Even the judge couldn't make sense of it. Judge Horton, at one point, gave one of those dramatic, powerful speeches you see in movies when he set aside one of the verdicts and ordered a new trial. He basically said, yeah, I get the jury just declared them guilty, but I don't believe them. He pointed out that the doctors found no injuries on the woman, that most of the white men who'd tussled with the black man weren't called to testify. And the only one who was, Lester Carter, actually corroborated Bates' recantation. Judge Horton said the charges were nonsense. And outside of Alabama, it was pretty universally accepted that he was right. Even some Alabama officials were starting to rethink things. After Bates' her story, charges against five of the nine were dismissed, which is weird because this is pretty much an all-or-nothing situation. Either you believe all nine raped the women, as Price said, or you don't. Yet the remaining four faced retrial, and all four were convicted.
2: You also had several who had escaped. Imagine trying to escape from an Alabama chain gang but they managed to get out. Alabama tracked one down up into Michigan. Michigan refused, and think about this, a state refusing to extradite a convicted felon back to Alabama, because Michigan looked up and said, this is wrong. This is just wrong.
0: Eventually, even some prosecutors began to think, well, geez, maybe Price is full of it. They slowly and quietly began paroling the convicted ones. Those four weren't cleared, But death was off the table, and their sentences had been significantly shortened.
2: There were so many egregious constitutional errors in this case that by the time the Scottsboro case is done, and eventually they start getting let out one by one by one by one, it took, first, 18 years for the last one. Imagine being in prison, in an Alabama prison. You are 17. You get out when you're 35 for a crime that never happened.
0: Not only that, but it shaped the rest of their lives. They lost years fighting the charges, years they could have been learning a trade or starting a family. Even if the whole country believes you're innocent, you don't get that time back. Plus there was trauma I mean, these men were set to die. Haywood Patterson was actually sentenced to die four separate times. So imagine again, basically living in the shadows
2: for almost 40, 50 years because of something that never
0: happened. Here's what we know became of the men, per Alabama media group reporting. Ozzie Powell had tried to escape in 1937 by stabbing an officer during a prison transfer. In the scuffle, Powell was shot in the head. Amazingly, he survived, but with brain damage. He was among the five against whom charges were dismissed, but he was convicted of assaulting the police officer in his escape attempt. He was paroled in 1946. Charges against Roy Wright, Eugene Williams, Willie Roberson, and Olin Montgomery were dismissed, and most went on to lead quiet lives. Roy Wright's the exception. He was the 13-year-old brother of Andy Wright. Roy went to vocational school, served in the army, and got married. In 1959, he returned home from a tour of duty and found his wife with another man. He killed her and then killed himself. Of the four who remained charged, Clarence Norris was paroled in 1946, after which he assumed his brother's identity. He was pardoned in 1976 and died 13 years later of Alzheimer's disease. Andy Wright was paroled in 1943, fled Alabama, then was put back in prison until 1950. Charlie Weems was released on parole in November 1938. No one knows what happened to him afterward. Hayward Patterson, the highest profile of the men, was the one who had escaped to Michigan. He did that in 1948 after serving 17 years. Serving a 75-year sentence, he was the only of his co-defendants not to have been paroled. As Anderson mentioned, Michigan refused to extradite him. He told his story to crowds for several years and wrote a book called Scottsboro Boy. Two years after the escape, he was selling copies of his book at a saloon when a fight broke out. Multiple people pulled knives and a man named Willie Mitchell was stabbed to death. Patterson maintained his innocence and the first jury deadlocked. The case was retried and the second jury found him guilty of manslaughter. He died in prison just two years after that of cancer. He was 39. In 1976, a TV movie came out called Judge Horton and the Scottsboro Boys. In the postscript, the movie accurately stated that Ruby Bates had died in 1961. Watching the movie at home, Victoria Price was caught a little off guard by her postscript.
1: Victoria Price... Quickly forgotten, lived out her life in Flintsville, Tennessee. Died there in 1961, only a few days after Ruby Bates.
0: Price was pretty pissed that she'd been killed off, but more than that, she was furious that characters in the movie called her a whore and a bum. She sued NBC for defamation and invasion of privacy. The station eventually settled for an undisclosed amount. The impact of the Scottsboro trials really can't be understated. As Carol Anderson said,
2: Scottsboro speaks to so much in the criminal justice system. But what you also get in this is a series of Supreme Court decisions dealing with the right to competent counsel. Thank God. The right to have a jury that is really, truly a jury of your peers.
0: As the cases dragged on and on, the U.S. Supreme Court leveled two precedent-setting rulings. The high court ruled in Norris versus Alabama that the Scottsboro Boys were denied a fair trial because of the systematic exclusion of blacks on Jackson County jury rolls. SCOTUS also separately ruled in Powell versus Alabama that denying someone competent counsel was a violation of due process. Both of those rulings had huge implications for the rest of the country and were cited time and again in other cases by other judges and lawyers. Scottsboro residents hated that their town's name was synonymous in much of the country with racism, and the trials were touchy subjects for a long while. From an American tragedy... I've had people that knew that you and I were going to have this conversation, and some of them said, oh, don't do it, don't do it, don't stir it up again. I said, well, it's a part of us. In 2013, a woman named Sheila Washington, who founded the Scottsboro Boys Museum and Cultural Center, lobbied to have the men officially pardoned. was known
2: for this all over the world. Eighty-three years, some people ask me, why did I want to bring up a case that's this old? I said, because it's left undone. It's hanging in the balance of justice to be corrected.
0: The Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles agreed, voting unanimously to pardon Patterson, Weems, and Andy Wright, the only three whose records were still marred by the rape convictions. Here's AP reporter Bianca Dady. Alabama law doesn't allow posthumous pardons, but the measure approved by the state legislature was tailored just for the Scottsboro Boys. Lawmakers say they know
2: it doesn't change the course of history, but it's a step toward trying to right what they call a gross
0: injustice. To research this infuriating case, I read a book called *Accused: The Trials of the Scottsbury Boys, Lies, Prejudice, and the 14th Amendment. I also watched a couple of documentaries and read tons of contemporary news coverage. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network, To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod.com and check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.